The scripture is from John 21, 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Carrie. Throughout the spring, we have been looking at these questions that Jesus asks. And um, the question that he asks in this passage, uh, this short little passage uh, that we're going to look at this morning, may be his most vulnerable question that he's ever asked. Because he asks, do you love me? When you think about that, I mean, have you ever asked another person that question? That is such a, um, it's such a vulnerable question. Do you love me? And uh, as we have seen with most of Jesus's questions, they are so loaded with meaning. They're so profound. There's multi, you know, layers to this thing. So let's just jump in and look at it. And what I want to what I hope that we see as we look at this question is that this question has an invitation and it has an implication and it has a foundation. So let's look at those three things. Um, Hopefully we'll see it in the passage, how this question has an invitation, implication, and foundation. First, um, the invitation of this question. Well, if you notice, uh, Jesus is talking to one of his disciples, one of his good friends, one of his dearest friends, a guy named Simon Peter. And he actually asked this question three times, not just one time. He says, you know, Simon Peter, son of John, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? One of the reasons why Jesus asked this question over and over is because uh, he wants the answer to be yes. He wants Peter to love him. If my wife, Catherine, works from home on on a particular day, and I text her three different times throughout the day, hey, did my Amazon package arrive yet? It's pretty clear I want that Amazon package to have arrived. Jesus is asking this question. Part of the reason, one of the reasons why he's asking this question over and over is because he he wants Peter to love him. And this gives you this, uh, I think, a really unique window into, into... Jesus' kind of whole agenda, his whole deal, is that he wants people to love him. He wants to be in relationships with people that is, is, that is marked primarily by love. Now, we don't ever assume that everybody in this room is a Christian, and you might be sitting here, and you may not be somebody who follows Jesus, and you may hear this, and you may think, okay, no offense to you Christians here, but Jesus kind of sounds pathetic in this passage. He kind of sounds like that insecure elementary kid who passes the note to the, you know, the person that they kind of have a crush on, and they open it up. It says, do you like me? Circle yes or no. And it can seem like Jesus is asking this question from this needy, insecure place, like he's looking at Peter and saying, love me, love me, say that you love me, fool me, fool me. <laughs> but, but here's the thing, is he, he's, he's not. He's, this question is not coming from this needy, desperate place inside of him. He's not asking this question for his sake. He's asking this question for, for Peter's sake, for our sake. 
And here's what I mean. The Bible says, the, the claim of the Bible is that every human heart was designed to love Jesus ultimately. And when we fail to do that, when we substitute other things, when we love other things more than Jesus, that's what creates problems in our life. That's when, when, when damage and dysfunction gets introduced into our lives. Now, I know that is, a, that is an over-the-top claim to make, but here's how I want you to think about it. Um, I came across this video a number of years ago. Somebody shared it with me. I heard about it. Uh, I, I rewatched it on YouTube this morning. You can find it. Uh, it's about how these, it's, a, it's about hunters in Africa, that when these uh, men go into the Kalahari Desert on these hunting expeditions, as they get deeper and deeper into the desert, they have to be able to know where the water is. And the way that they figure out where the water is, is fascinating. The way that they do it is by capturing a baboon and having the baboon lead them to the baboon's like secret water stash. But you think, okay, how do you capture a baboon in the wild? They don't use nets, they don't have spears. Here's what they do. They go up to like a, 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 a dirt embankment, like a, a wall of dirt, and they take a stick and they, they kind of dig out a little hole in the, in the dirt so it creates this tunnel. And in the back of this little narrow tunnel, they drop all of these melon seeds. And then they just, the hunters just sit down and wait. And the baboons smell the seeds. They want the seeds. They're into the seeds. And so when the baboon reaches their hand into the, the little tunnel and grab the seeds at the back, it creates this fist. And then their fist gets jammed. They can't get their hand out of the tunnel because it's, it's too big. And then all the Hunter does is just walk up to the baboon and ties a rope around its neck. And you think, why didn't the baboon just let go? He could have. If he had let go of the seeds, he would have been free. But the reality was is he loved the seeds so much, he couldn't let go. And the, the, it cost him his freedom. He thought he had the seeds, but the, the deeper and the pr more profound reality is that the seeds actually had him. And then once the hunter has the baboon, it's fascinating how he, how he tricks the baboon into showing him where the water is. You'll have to watch the video to see how it does it. It's amazing. But here's the point, is that Jesus is saying, when you love anything else more than me, other than me, you lose your freedom. You can't let go. You're grabbing onto this thing that you love, you've prioritized, you've made this ultimate thing in your life, and you think you have hit. You, you think you can let go at any point that you want, but the reality is, is you can't, because it has you. It has introduced damage, dysfunction into your life because you can't let go of this thing that you love. Now, let me give you some examples. Take work as an example. Work's a great thing. The Bible's pro-work. But when you draw your identity from your work, when, when you draw your meaning, your significance, your source of satisfaction from your work, what happens is that you end up overworking. You can't not overwork because it's the source of your purpose and identity in this life. And what that means is you go into the office early, come home from the office late, you're checking emails through dinner, you're working on the weekends, working on vacation, and we have all these excuses. We justify it as a busy season. These are important. I got to do, do this. I got to do this. But the reality is, is you think you have work and you can let go at any point you want, but you can't. It has you. And it's introducing damage into you physically. It's introducing damage into your relationships with your family, with your friends. Use another example. Um, what about being healthy? 
Being healthy is a lovely thing, a wonderful thing. I hope to be that one day. But when, when being healthy becomes the thing that you most love, you become obsessive, you obsess over calories, you obsess over carbs, you obsess over your weight, you obsess over your size, you're constantly comparing yourself to other people, you're sacrificing time with friends or with family to prioritize exercise, you're, um, you, you develop a, a, a self-righteousness over people who eat at McDonald's or you know, whatever. It's introducing damage into your life, dysfunction into your relationships. It's this way with everything. If you love control, you love to be in control, you'll always be anxious. If you love being liked, you will always be overextended because you'll never be able to say no to people. Don't want to risk people not liking you, so you overcommit. Um, if you love grades, accomplishments, achievements, you'll always be stressed. Jesus is saying, I want you to love me because when you fix your heart on me, I'm the one thing in the universe that doesn't introduce damage and dysfunction into your life. I'm the only one that actually is the solution to the disorder. I'm the one that, that doesn't remove and take away your freedom. I'm the one that when you put your heart on me, I'm the one that gives you back your freedom. I'm the only one that when you put your heart on me, it doesn't twist you, it doesn't corrupt you, it doesn't, it doesn't make you something less than human. You actually become transformed into somebody that's beautiful, the way that you were actually designed to actually live your life. Now, I know these are over-the-top claims, and I'm going to flesh them out here in a, more, uh, in a minute, but at this point, here's what I want you to see, is that this question, do you love me, there's an, there's an invitation there. He wants this for you, for your benefit. Now, before we jump on to um, point number two, I want to make one more quick point, sub-point. When we hear this question, do you love me, and the invitation behind it, it's really easy for those of us who are in the church. It's really easy for those of us who claim to follow Jesus to miss this to miss that what Jesus is really after is our hearts, is our love, that what he wants is for us to treasure him. And what I mean by it's easy for us to miss this is that it, it's easy for people in the, in the church to reduce Christianity down to an ethic, that it's, it's, a, it's a social system by which we, this is how we think about social issues in the world. And so we say, okay, here's what, here's what Christianity really is. It's the belief system on how to think about sexuality or how to think about abortion or how to think about race or how to think about justice or education or whatever. And the reality is, is yes, the gospel most definitely speaks to all of those issues. And you may be somebody who has very strong opinions about all of those issues. But the question that you must wrestle with is this. In the midst of those strong opinions, do you love him? Another way that we do this is we reduce Christianity down to a self-help system. We say, well, you know, I want to be a good person, so I'll go to church. It's a good thing. Good people go to church, don't they? 
Or you say, I really, I, I want less anxiety in my life. I want more peace in my life. So maybe I'll try praying. I'll try, tr- I'll try the Jesus thing on. Maybe I'll even try doing some of the things that the Bible says. And if that's you, the, the question that you have to wrestle with, or the thing that you have to notice about Jesus' question, rather, is he doesn't ask, do you love what I can do for you? He asks, do you love me? Do you actually love me, who I am, and what I have done? So you see, that's the invitation here. The invitation for Jesus behind this question is to, is to love him. That's what he wants. But okay, there's more. There's another layer to this. And we don't just see the invitation here, but what is the implication? What is the implication of this question? Well, if you go back to this dialogue with Jesus and Peter, he, he asks him, do you love me? Peter says, yes, I love you. And you would expect Jesus to say, okay, well, if you love me, here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow down and worship me. I want you to praise me then. But he doesn't say that. He says in verse 15, okay, you love me, feed my lambs. And then verse 16, they have this whole exchange a second time, and Jesus says, okay, tend my sheep. And then one more third round, he says, okay, well, feed my sheep. And so what's the point? Here's the point. What he's saying is love for Jesus is put into practice by love for his people. That the main way that we love him is by taking care of them. And you ask, okay, well, who's the them? Jesus says, I want you to love, I want you to tend to my sheep, my lambs. He's referring to people that belong to him. He's referring to the church. He's referring to Christians, people that, people that are his, that belong to his. And so what, what Jesus is doing is he, he's looking at somebody who claims to love Jesus, and he says, great, the way that you love me is by loving my people, feeding them, nourishing them, taking care of them, tending to them like a shepherd might tend to their sheep. You bear their burdens. You enter their life. You take on the mess that is what it's like to deal with my people. Now, of course, if you read through the Gospels, Jesus is always telling his people, I want you to love others beyond your little tribe. I want you to love your neighbors. I want you to even love your enemies. But in this particular moment, he's zeroing in and he's saying, okay, here's what it looks like for you to love me. You claim to love me, love each other. Love one another in the church. Now, what does that look like practically? Because there's a million ways we could tease this out. We could talk about this for weeks on end of what does it look like for a, for a church to love each other here well? So here's what I want to say about this. I heard um, a, a sermon from a pastor friend of mine, a guy named Brian Haybiggs, pastor out in Greenville, South Carolina. Great, great um, pastor, great person. And uh, he was talking to his congregation in this sermon, and here's what he said. He said, the more people that join this local church, the more people's burdens can go unseen. And what he meant by that is he was saying, look, there's a lot of people here. The more people that come into our community, when, when hard things happen and uh, so-and-so has a, there's a hospitalization or there's a, there's a death in the family or there's a, uh, someone experiences a miscarriage or a job loss or s- something horrible it's easy for everybody to begin to think, 
well, somebody else is on that. Somebody else is dealing with that. The pastoral staff is on it. The, 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 the ministry staff is on it. The elders are on it. Somebody's taking care of this. Therefore, I don't, not my problem. And here's what he said in the sermon. He said, please fight that instinct. And so I want to say the same thing to you this morning. Because here we are, our little church, and people are joining, and more people are coming, and as more people come, and as more people join this little congregation, it's really easy for that to be the reality, where hard things happen, something happens, and you begin to realize, okay, someone else is dealing with that. I don't have to insert myself into that. Please fight that instinct. You know, he, he uses this um, example of, uh, you might not even know who the person is, especially like that's one of the dynamics of as a church grows and gets bigger, you begin to look around and realize, I don't know everybody. I don't know who these people are. And, but you might hear of, oh, so-and-so who's in that community group experienced this really hard thing. You think, oh, I, I'm not going to involve myself. That's, that's not my lane. Please fight that instinct. You can always pray for them. You can text them. You can write them a card, send them a note. And I know we, we tend to think, well, that's weird. I don't know this person. Like that. And you, okay, but think this out. Is somebody going to open up a card that says, hey, you don't know me, but I'm at Redeemer. I'm praying for you. Do you think they're going to say, how dare this person? How dare they? They don't even know me. No. They would be encouraged to know, okay, there's people out there that I don't even know that are praying for me, that are supporting me. You may have somebody in your community group that uh, is going through a job transition, going through a job loss, and you realize, okay, I, don't, I can't financially float this person until they get on their feet again, but you can take them to lunch. You can, you can sit down with them. You can encourage them. You can support them. Say, hey, I don't know what this looks like for me to be with you in this, but I'm with you in this. There's lots of ways that this looks like, and I don't know what it looks like for each and every one of us, but it, it's fascinating. Earlier in the same gospel, in, the, in, in John chapter 13, Jesus said something very similar to his disciples. He's with his, his friends, his group of people, and here's what he says to them. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And, and listen to this. This is, the, this is the kicker. He says, by this, by doing this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, that's crazy to think about because what Jesus just said is the way that we love each other in here tells a story, and it communicates to a watching world that Jesus is real, it's the ultimate apologetic to a watching world, which is totally counterintuitive because you think, how does us doing anything in here affect anybody out there? I don't know, but part of what Jesus is saying is part of my missional strategy for the world out there is for you to love each other well in here, which means for us, the way that Midtown, part of the way that Midtown is gonna be blessed by the gospel is by how well we love each other in this room how well we support, take care of, bear each other's burdens in this room. And notice, Jesus said, Jesus didn't say, this happens by our Facebook posts. This happens when we win arguments, when we win debates, when we win lawsuits, when we win elections. It doesn't happen because of our snarky Christian bumper stickers. It happens through how we love each other, which means the greatest compliment that we could receive as a church is for somebody to come in here and say, not to not say, 
I love how wonderful your music is. I love how cool your building looks. I love how fun your youth ministry is. I love how attractive your senior pastor is. <laughs> the greatest compliment we could get would be for somebody to say, I don't know what's going on here, but I sense that y'all love each other deeply. That is the implication. If we claim to love Jesus, we will love each other in this room first and well and deeply. But there's one last layer to this. What's the foundation underneath this whole deal? Uh, well, let's look at it briefly. Um, I've always, you know, I've looked at this passage for years, and I think I've always just assumed it's a private conversation between Jesus and Peter. It's just Peter and him having this little powwow, but it's not. If you look at verse 15, it says, when they had finished breakfast, which means Jesus is with his whole group of disciples. There's a group of people present, and this is really important. Because look, look at what um, Jesus asks Peter at the very beginning. He says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And what he means by that is he's saying, Peter, do you love me more than all these other people that are here? And you think, that had to have been an awkward moment. Why would Jesus ask that? That's so, it almost feels inappropriate. It, like, it's totally insensitive. There is a reason. There's a backstory to this. And the reason is, is because Peter, on numerous occasions, elevated himself above the rest of the disciples. At one point, actually in John chapter 13, there's this awkward moment of silence, and Peter blurts out. He says, um, I will lay down my life for you. He doesn't say, we, all of us are going to lay down our life for you, Jesus. He says, I will. He's, he's elevating himself, singling himself out above the rest of them. In fact, at another point, Jesus tell, or Peter tells Jesus, even if everyone else abandons you, I never will. Even if all these chumps abandon you and leave you and betray you, I won't. I'll love you more than all these guys. My love for you is, is the best. I can love you better than anybody. And of course, if you know the story, uh, Peter fails miserably. When, when Jesus was arrested and he's being taken to uh, trial, it's dark and, and Peter is hanging out by himself by this fire and there's this uh, little girl that comes up and she recognizes Peter. She said, wait, aren't you, you're with, you were with that guy that just got arrested. And Peter to save his own skin, denies it. I don't know who you're talking about. I don't, I don't know who that is. He, he refuses to publicly identify with Jesus. I don't know who you're talking about. And they have this exchange, guess how many times? Three times. Three different times out of Peter's mouth, he says, I don't know the man. I don't know the man. I don't know the man. So now you have Peter talking this big game, and when push comes to shove, he fails, and he fails miserably. And so Peter at, or Jesus asks him, okay, Peter, here we are in front of all these guys. Do you love me more than them? How do you feel about it now? And what does Peter do? He does not say, yes, absolutely. I still love you more than anybody else. He says, Lord, I love you, and you know that I love you. He, he has been humbled. He stops comparing himself to other people. He has been humbled, and because of that, you know, what, you know what Jesus says? He says, okay, great, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep. He publicly reinstates Peter. 
He honors Peter. He tells, in the presence of everybody, he says, great, you've got a really important job in my kingdom now, Peter. You know what that tells you? That tells you that in that one moment, simultaneously, Jesus was looking at Peter and saying, I know that you failed me. I know that you betrayed me. I know that you denied me. You are a mess. And guess what? It doesn't move the needle an inch in my love for you. I am just as committed to you and just as much willing to honor you and publicly reinstate you. And here's what this means. What this shows us is that if you have a relationship with Jesus, the thing that is holding your relationship together is not your love for him. Our love for Jesus is flimsy. It is fickle. It is wishy-washy at best you would be crazy to think, the only reason we're in this thing is because of how great I am at loving Jesus. The thing that is keeping your relationship with Jesus intact is not your love for him, but it's his love for you. We love him and we can only love him because he first loved us. I'll end with this, final, uh, final thought. Y'all remember the movie, uh, Little Miss Sunshine? Great quirky, weird movie about this dysfunctional family, the Hoovers, has a very young Steve Carell in it, bearded, young-looking Steve Carell. It's kind of weird-looking. Um, but this family has this little eight-year-old daughter named Olive, and she gets entered into the Little Miss Sunshine pageant. And if you remember, at the end of the movie, she does this dance performance to, as her kind of talent portion of this you know, little kid's pageant. And so she comes out on stage. She has a top hat on, a cute little kind of tuxedo outfit. And the music starts playing, and it's the song Super Freak. And she starts dancing in ways eight-year-olds should not be dancing. And everyone in the crowd is shocked and offended, and, and they start whispering, they start booing. Half of the crowd gets up and they start leaving, but she's got a family out in the crowd. And the family sees what's happening, and they start clapping to the music, and they're trying to cheer her on and encourage her, and everybody's freaking out. The MC is like, oh my goodness, we got to get this girl off, off stage, and so he comes and tries to pull her off stage. The dad gets up, goes to the stage, and says, no, this is my daughter. Let her dance. And by the end of this scene, the whole family has joined her on stage, and they're dancing along with her to Super Freak. By the end of the song, everyone in the crowd has left except for these two misfits who enjoyed it and are cheering for them. But it's this, it's this amazing, uncomfortable, beautiful scene because it shows you this is how Jesus loves us. This could have been her most embarrassing moment. This could have been the family's most embarrassing moment, but what did they do? They chose to publicly identify with her. They joined her in her shame, in her embarrassment, and they said, we don't care about the applause from this crowd. What we care about is being with you. And if the crowd's gonna mock us, let them mock, because we're committed to you. Jesus is willing to publicly identify with us, even if you and I are too embarrassed or too ashamed to publicly identify with him. He refers to us as my lambs, my sheep, which means he looks out at the church and all of our dysfunction, 
all the ways that we get it wrong, all the ways that we hurt each other, and all the ways that we hurt other people. He looks at the mess that is the church, and he says, they're mine. I'm with them. That's how much he loves us, that he's willing to identify with us. And in fact, he he identifies with us all the way. And you know, because look at the cross. Because at the cross, he's stripped naked. At the cross, he is laughed at and booed and mocked and made fun of. It's like he joins us on stage and takes on all of our shame all of our sin, and he gets all the booze, and he gets everyone in the crowd walks out on him. That's how much he loves us, that he's willing to join us. This is, this is a love that is so enormous, so infinite, it can handle all of our failures, all of our betrayals. It can handle our weak love for him. That's how big it is. And it's so beautiful, and it's so enormous that when you give yourself over to it, this is what transforms you into a beautiful person. This is, what, this is what liberates you to live the life that you were actually designed to live. So, we'll end with this spot, which is actually where we began, which is this invitation of this question. Jesus asking, do you love me? And if you hear that question and it leads you to this place of guilt, a place of feeling troubled, a place of, oh, gosh, I don't really, I don't love Jesus maybe at all, or maybe I don't love Jesus as much as I should. Don't let this question take you to guilt. Let it take you into the arms of Jesus, where you can bask in his love for failures, because that's the only way that love for him actually starts to get activated. That's the way that love for him actually gets awoken. It's, it's by receiving and basking in the love that he has for you. Do you love him? That's the question. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I do pray that you would open up our eyes and crack open our hearts, that we um, might see and savor your love for us, Would you thaw the ice around our own frozen hearts? It is so easy for us to just want to get busy. It's so easy for us to just want to think about philosophy. But I pray that you would activate our very hearts, that we might grow to love you, to love people, to even love our neighbors and our enemies. Only you can do that deep, transforming work inside of us. And so we throw ourselves at your mercy and open ourselves up to your power. Do that in us, which we can't do on our own. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.